Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. another episode of really true fiction this is luke mason coming to you from the city of calgary and david parker also from the city of calgary david i have a question for you what's your stance on hypothetical questions if you were to be asked them i think there is a place in the in the you know human experience for asking questions without wanting an answer in order to make a person think without <laughs> responding so you are in favor i'm in favor of, of hypothetical questions are you in favor of unnecessary rhetorical questions yes Okay, good. Glad we solved that problem. (laughs) But today we're talking about Crime and Punishment. Yes. One of the greatest novels ever written. Yep. Well, I think if anyone has actually read it. Yes. (laughs) One of the greatest novels that probably is not overly well read by our generation. True, true. (laughs) I think there's probably... There's probably some scholars in the literature department of some obscure college here in this right now. I'd be like, crime and punishment? Yes! <laughs> and everyone's like, is that an HBO show? <laughs> <laughs> that's because, like, that's what I would have thought. Yeah. Before true. I first it could have been of, like a LA confidential yeah, crime and punishment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do the crime, you get the punishment. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and anyway, instead, rather, it's a novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky, in my opinion, probably one of the top five greatest writers of all time, at least novelists. And I believe it was written 1866. I think it was serialized, though. Yeah, so, so he did, I don't think he published it all in one go, very much like Dickens, I think. Was, yeah, I, uh, I imagine that's how you got your stories out there originally it's like you'd have a huge section in a newspaper or something right so I, I i believe it was like a few weeks ago but i read that he had sections published throughout of 1866 and dostoevsky himself is a very interesting character in the sense that often he would have to write simply to pay off his gambling debts or any number of of things that were going wrong well, and in his he life. has a short story called the gambler yeah which <laughs> d- delves into the psychology to pay off his gambling debts <laughs> And at one point, he had to flee Russia for a while because he owed so much money, and and he just couldn't pay it, so he just left for a while. Yeah, it's like a cutthroat version of art imitates life. <laughs> life and death life imitates yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we read the Signet classic, Crime and Punishment, which I believe 2006 is the the publishing of that one. So, And I think it's a a sign of good literature if you're able to have it translated, and still be an amazing story. Mm -hmm. Well, because fundamentally, this is a story about psychology. This is one of the first... I think probably most novel and story-savvy people at this stage in the modern world are pretty up on the beats 
of the in your head narrative style, right? Yeah. It's like, very common. Yeah, it is common. So it's I think if you read this book, well, I, I still think reading it now, it's very monumentous and impactful, but there aren't really any books like this before this book. Yeah, you don't you don't see internal dialogue happening like maybe Les Mis a little bit with Jean Valjean, and there's probably, I'm sure literary critics have other examples of this, but th- I think this is the best example and the <laughs> best first example of it. <laughs> Shitheads like us don't know of any Ex- other exactly. <laughs> previous examples exactly. to uh, Crime and Punishment. And I mean, probably Dostoevsky wrote more before this, too, that was of this ilk type of thing. But just how... Because it's a third-person narrative, the book, and yet you feel viscerally, very viscerally, that word connotes exactly how you feel reading this. You are so intimately connected to the thoughts of Raskolnikov, the protagonist. I think it's like third person omniscient narrative or something like it's like the way that God would know your thoughts. The, the narrator's narrating the thoughts, The, the level of detail that Dostoevsky gets into, into this guy's head. It's a type of genius that kind of bowls you over. Like you just, it's an onslaught of what would be going on in a person's head if they were doing what Raskolnikov was doing, and and thinking like he thinks, yeah. Like, and it is, it's a troubling place to be in his mind. <laughs> like I found reading the beginning to be, it makes you feel icky, and not not because of what happens necessarily even, but because the way he's thinking just feels poorly ordered. Yeah, he definitely has a what would you say a miscalculation of priority yeah yeah. (laughs) i would say but also there's a not insignificant amount of pockets of sympathy that i have for yeah i think that's the genius of this book is is even at the end you're like you don't want to feel positively to him necessarily but you do throughout the whole book in fact you're almost kind of wanting him to get away with it at some points and you're like what does this say about me psychologically (laughs) (laughs) well like if you were to give this book a genre it's part mystery part drama part almost like in a weird way it's like a part profile of a of a killer yeah <laughs> right tr- true crime part a little tr- bit yeah, yeah. part yeah. true crime definitely part comedy oh there are sure, some yeah. really <laughs> funny parts in this book so it's it transcends genres in its style just given any particular chapter you're on and yet it's very much a dark this is a dark story this is like the this is a, a like a shadow version of earth except you come to the realization that it it's kind of the life we all live in some ways <laughs> well, not i sure hope well, not. <laughs> no but but his his frustration with the way things yes. are and his fighting against it he's but not but but his depressive fighting against it yeah. i think is a lot of the impulses that come into his mind are things that I definitely can relate to, and I think probably a lot of people can relate to, which is why he's so interesting. And this story is about a guy who would take the impulses that most people have a lot of the time, and what would it be like to go too far with those? Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. The little like reveries that people have of like the darkest things they could do, given the, their current level of frustration or anger with any given thing that's. <laughs> that makes people feel angry or frustrated. 
but then what would it be like to actually do that really dark thing that occurs to you? And and he's so radically antisocial too. Like he hates being around people. And I, and I think it's maybe a little bit of an extremer version than most people experience, but like we've all experienced that. I just don't want to be around people. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get it. Like we're going to talk yeah. about Raskolnikov a lot, but it's interesting how he's antisocial, but he's not socially inept. Yeah. Right? He, like he's yeah. able to hold a conversation he's like he's very intelligent he knows how to talk to people and he knows how to there's even moments where he's enjoying talking to the person he's doing he just never really wants to yeah (laughs) and 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 the the, the common refrain is like disgust he's kind of just disgusted by other people yeah so since you've read this book much more well not much more recently than i but a few (laughs) you've read it within the last two weeks and i've read it within the last few months do you want to just give us a kind of basic plot rundown? Okay, I'm going to go really simple because uh, it's obviously a very complex plot. But uh, we encounter Raskolnikov. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should, we should <laughs> oh, mention yes. at the top, all the names in this book are Russian. So we're going to do our best on pronunciations. We were practicing today before this on some of them, and we're just stumbling over a lot. We'll try to say them correctly. I think Raskolnikov. We Raskolnikov. Can get, who is the, Raskolnikov, Raskolnikov is yeah. the main guy who does the the deed in this book. There are several other characters that are important and interesting that have harder names than that, even. So some of them will say, some of them will try to say once and then give nicknames too. <laughs> yeah. So, but describing what they do is more important. And and honestly, when I when I was reading this, I just recognized the name. I didn't even. This is how I read. I recognize the name more than I recognize the uh, pronunciation in my head it was just a ver- visual recognition so um, a lot of well, how we're going to talk about people will be in relation to one another as well yeah and it's weird i mean obviously it's a little aside it's weird trying to pronounce in your head a english version of a word from or a name from a different language that you don't know yeah right yeah exactly so like where do you split the syllables <laughs> it, uh, like i just did my best based on the very little russian words i know yeah, so Raskolnikov. So Raskolnikov, we're, we're introduced to him at the very beginning, and he, he's living this um, poverty-stricken life. He's got no money. Um, it appears to be set kind of around this time, maybe like a, like 20 years before. I can't remember. They probably say in the book. It's, it's before the revolution, but there's definitely an, uh, an uprising of the, what they call progressive people, progressive forward-thinking people. And he's very poor. We don't find out till later, but he's a student. He was a student, but he doesn't have enough money to fund his education anymore. Lives in St. Petersburg. Lives in St. Right. Petersburg, and he's living in this dingy apartment. He hasn't paid his rent in a long time. Back in these days, if you lived, if you were a boarder, you would often be fed for your room and board, literally. But they, his landlady had stopped sending up food to him because he hadn't paid in so long. But he seems to have a cordial relationship with the maid, who sometimes brings him food. But he seems sickly. He's obsessed about something. He's kind of this obsessive, sickly, weak student, intellectual character. And so we're introduced to him, and he's he's living his life, and he seems to have some kind of obsession and plan. We discover this plan fairly early on in the book is to murder someone. Turns out that this the person he's murdering is a pawnbroker, so she will she'll take things. Uh, give money and then you can come buy it back, but it's kind of like a pledge. And he's given, he's sold a few of his most precious possessions to her for money, 
but he has this, uh, what you think at the beginning is his hatred of her. And so he uh, eventually murders her, and then in the course of murdering her, murders her sister as well, and somehow gets out of the building without being noticed, hides the things that he's stolen, because she's actually quite wealthy, because she's been kind of hoarding all this wealth that she's been getting from pawnbroking. And then we basically see this descent into madness, uh, in which he is kind of losing his mind. He's going in and out of delirium. And he's going in and out of conversations with people during this delirium. In the course of this, he gets a letter from his mother saying that his sister is being through this terrible kind of abusive work situation, got out of it, got engaged to someone through a series of events. And that someone is moving to St. Petersburg uh, to hopefully increase his career and his prestige. And they're going to come to St. Petersburg as well. But this guy sounds like he's pretty stingy and, on, and and in the letter, she mentions that he likes the idea of marrying someone poor because then they're always going to feel a sense of uh, gratitude towards him. And he barely pays for anything and puts them up in bad lodging. And this really upsets Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov. <laughs> and this really upsets Raskolnikov. And he then goes into this delirium. Guy shows up, has a conversation with him. Uh, he basically says, no, you can't marry my sister. You're scummy. Says, how dare you say like that she's poor and she's a beggar and that she's always going to be grateful to you. I don't like you. I don't like who you are. And there's a whole bunch of plot points that go through here. But the long and short of it is he ends up falling in love with this prostitute who he then confesses the murder to. But there's also a detective who's kind of been following him and figuring out that and figures out that he was the one that did the murder. And just in the moment where he's about to arrest him and take him in, someone comes in and confesses the murder, and he seems to be getting away with the murder. And through the through the course of all of this, he's we discover that he has this ideology which believes that there's a difference between ordinary and extraordinary people. And extraordinary people have to take measures, even violent measures, to progress in life and to, and to build a better world. Uh, and he believes or believed because it seems he doesn't believe it quite anymore that he was extraordinary. And therefore he was testing himself by committing this murder. When, when he confesses it to this prostitute, she's actually a very religious prostitute who says, well, you have to go and confess like to, in order to save your soul, you'll be condemned to hell. The devil made you do it. But in this confession, the man uh, who had been the employer of his sister Hears, overhears it and utilizes that information to try to convince his sister to come back. And we can go back into that whole situation later. Long and short of it is he ends up confessing, serving time. The Our, our prostitute, Sonia is her name, follows him in a, in a fit of loyalty and love. And, and the end of the narrative is basically him coming to terms with the fact that he loves her too and supposedly serving out his time in hard labor in Serbia and then hopefully getting out and being able to be with her. Yes. The murder itself, well, it ends up being a double murder, which wasn't his plan. He was only planning to murder the one lady and then her sister shows up. That happens fairly early in the book, like within the first 60 or 70 pages. And the main thrust of the story thereafter is him living with the knowledge that he did it and no one else knows he did it but there is a lot of suspicion from some people some 
So because his delirium takes over, so a lot of people are like, "What's going on with Raskolnikov?" There does appear to be a couple people who are like, "Hmm, this I, is so interesting." The timing of this, and that's like the meat and potatoes of the story is everything happening around that particular plotline, and then there are a handful of these other kind of subplots that are loosely tied to the main plot, but secondary. Like this one character you mentioned, Svidrigailov, who is his sister's former employer, who is a really lovable dirtbag, almost in a weird like way. A real dirtbag. Yeah, he's a real dirtbag as you can go. Yeah, he is a dirtbag, but he's pretty funny too. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. And then he, like, Svidrigailov is actually the only character who who finds out that Raskolnikov did the crime without Raskolnikov telling them because he overhears the conversation with Sonia. And then it's a great narrative twist how just before there's so many of these other auxiliary conversations that Raskolnikov and Svidrigailov have had about philosophy and psychology and everything else that Svidrigailov actually commits suicide without telling the police. It's just a great narrative. And and this is because he's in love with the sister, like with Don, or sorry, with Dunya, with Dunya, du- with Dunya is Raskolnikov's sister. Yeah, with Dunya, and he's been in love with her. the The whole problem, the abuse at work, was basically that he had fallen in love with her and been trying to woo her, and she had refused. And then the his wife had found out, and she had tried to like tarnish Dunya's name throughout the whole village, and like had gone to every house reading this letter that um, the husband had written to her right, running yeah. away and basically had been ruining her name. There's, there's The thing that's so great about this book is that the main plot, which is always there, like it's kind of omni there, right? The Raskolnikov did this crime and now he's living with it wherever he goes. And yet this, the three or four subplots going on are also amazing. Yes. With, oh, right? It's, it's an intertwining of narratives that's so well done. And... And everything comes together. It's it's that's I think the most satisfying part of the story is is how well it's interwoven. Mm-hmm. Because there's that there's this Vidrigailov slash Dunya aside love affair sort of thing, but not really. Yeah, but this obsession mm-hmm. like a romantic obsession. Um, there's the lead detective or police officer on the case of the murders. His yep. name is. Uh, Por- Porfiry, yeah, Por- uh, Petrovich. Yeah, Petrovich. Porfiry Petrovich, or we'll probably just call him Porfiry. Yeah, Porfiry. Yeah. And um, he's kind of got, you see this in great TV shows with cops, where he's he's got, like, he's super intelligent, and he's got the right kind of, I guess you'd call it cop's intuition, where he looks at Raskolnikov, and he knows he's guilty, right? He knows he's guilty, but he's got no evidence, Yeah, right? He's got no evidence on Raskolnikov, but he just sent so he starts playing these really intense psychological games with Raskolnikov. And what's so great about it in the story is that Raskolnikov knows that's what he's doing. Yeah, and he still Raskolnikov goes, is really smart. Like yes. this is something that should be noted. He's a very intelligent person who's already published papers on literally crime and punishment. Yeah. And that that's the underlying theme is his idea is that there are certain people who can allow themselves to commit crimes. Yeah. And he hit guy he kinda or the the his hero is Napoleon. Right. Because Napoleon did whatever he wanted to get where he was trying to go. Yeah, so there's some great cat and mouse between Raskolnikov and Porphyry before that was a trope. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so like that's what's so cool. So then there's that subplot style 
And then there's the a, a lot of the subplot stuff that happens with Raskolnikov's mom and Dunya and how like they're kind of a lot of his pull back to humanity. And, and yeah, he, he he treats them so badly. And so like, bad, but... Oh. Like, but just rejects them when they arrive. They haven't seen him in three years. And... But because we're given access to Raskolnikov's thoughts, we as the reader, not anyone else in the story, which is, again, a super interesting narrative choice, how basically as the audience, we have omniscience that none of the characters have, not even Raskolnikov really, that he feels really bad about the way he treats them, but he still does it anyway because of some sort of compulsion that, again, is a a theme in this book. It's just an ugly compulsion that he can't control, even though he knows he kind of wants to. He's he's teetering. He's teetering between. He, he I need to do like these terrible like, he's things. He's teetering on the on sanity. Like there, yeah. are, he seems. Like, and and the interesting part is like I think he would have gotten away with it, except he keeps going into the, these deliriums and going and talking to people and like creating uh, a sense of distrust in himself and even being like, oh, you think I did it? Like and like the only tie he has to this woman in most people's mind is the fact that he had pawned things to her yeah the, the woman so there murdered. were pledges yeah the, the the woman that was murdered he considered Aliona, her a good target ivanova yeah yeah he considered her a good target because he thought she, she was, was evil un- yeah and, and really like her crime is that she was unbelievably unlikable yeah and pretty <laughs> yeah, that stingy was, and that's an interesting thing that i wanted to talk to you about about this book what is it about her that you just you do kind of despise it even in the moment you're like oh you he's such a good writer that you feel disdain and disgust about her and yet there's no indication that she's actually done anything to deserve this apart from being basically a money lender part yeah exactly i mean which 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 to be fair back then was a very like looked upon very poorly yes well part of raskolnikov's rationale he didn't like her (laughs) for one he owed her calls her a louse he's always like she's a louse yeah but he also kind of rationalized it in the sense that she would be the least missed person in the community the cops would be perfunctory and that's about it with someone like this and not just the least missed but also had the most money because i mean he does seem troubled about the reason he did it he he basically gives three reasons to sonia or or sophia there's different ways to pronounce it russian names are confusing (laughs) but he, he gives different reasons to her but there's three separate reasons, and each he's like, well, that maybe that wasn't the real reason. Maybe this was the real reason. Part of it was to get money so that he could like advance beyond this poverty that he was experiencing. Like he was scrounging up, you know, and I don't know exactly what the conversion rate would be, but it seems like he was scrounging up ten, five ruples to kind of get by. And you could buy meals for that, and you could buy yeah. some, some clothes for like ten ruples, but like. It's not enough to live. No. And I mean, and as the book unwinds, you realize that only a handful of his, well, not even that many of his motivations were even clear to him yes, about why exactly, he was doing this. Exactly. Which again is the fundamental reason why this book has been considered a uber classic is the tugs at the subconscious before that was even a concept. Kind yeah. Of yeah. I uh, agree. So that, but then also, again, super interesting. It's more of a, a sub relationship more than a subplot, but with his best friend, yeah, uh, who, who apparently he's not even really friends with, but this guy <laughs> loves him, but he yeah. treats like, go away, I don't want to talk. Well, to this you. guy, so like, if I just read it, it appears that his I would pronounce his name Razumakin, 
but apparently you're not supposed to pronounce the K. So, so it's, it's like Razumim. 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 Razumim, yeah. But that doesn't seem right either. So probably... We're just call him Raz. <laughs> yeah, for the rest of the podcast, he's just Raz. And so Raz, this guy, is this kind of happy-go-lucky character that for some reason is a, a kind of like a mild devotee of Raskolnikov. Like he's like, like it's kind of cool. Again, narratively, it's really cool because he seems to be one of the few people in the book who does kind of recognize the hints of genius that Raskolnikov portrays. And so I think there's an element of flattery, but not Raz doesn't mean it as flattery, but Raskolnikov feels that way about it. So he kind of likes uh, Raz but because but of he that. Also, Raz also acts almost like an older brother. It's not a an admiration that he has. It's a, a doting. Like, he's taking care of him when he's sick. He's But also because he sees his potential. Yeah. 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 Like, uh, it's a very complex psychological relationship. It's a very good uh, portrait of a certain kind of friendship. And and yet, Raz could not be more different. No. No. <laughs> no like, like, Raz is kind he's... and outgoing and never misses an opportunity to get drunk and have fun and a very like and a massive romantic like just like falls yeah. in love with uh, he's the Rikosnikov's hero sister like immediately and yeah this is a very unconventional book yeah however if there was a the hero trope it'd be Razumikin. yeah Razumikin is probably the hero I would, yeah and so yeah. then with all of those relationships kind of coming in and out of the story all the while with Raskolnikov living with what he did is how the details of the story unfold, which is both, his book is both meditative and titillating. Yeah, every page you want to keep turning, right? You want to keep, you're interested in the story. There are tidbits left everywhere to connect everything. Like there's that moment where he drops the jewelry box or the jewelry box has been dropped and, and suddenly that becomes evidence or there's the tension of, is he going to escape before he's caught? Like when I was reading this, I hadn't read anything about it before. So I didn't know if like punishment was going to be a lot bigger part of the book, but it turns out crime. And then maybe the punishment is the psychological trauma of, cause he's not, I don't know if he's ever really remorseful, but he's definitely scared of being caught. He's scared of punishment. Like his fear all throughout the book after the murder is being discovered. He's cutting off pieces of his pants that have blood on it. He's having night terrors about someone finding out what he's done. And that seems to be his terror. But but you never get the impression that he's sorry he did it. You get the impression that he is disappointed. Or not disappointed. Disappointed in himself for not being strong enough to mm-hmm. just get over it. Well, he's definitely always afraid of getting caught. Like, that's always there. It did seem to me, though, there is a part of his subconscious that feels like he's a fraud and that he's not actually this kind of extraordinary person yes, that yeah. would be worthy of doing a thing like a murder because his whole rationale for why he's morally justified for killing Alonia, the pawnbroker, is that she's a parasite and he's kind of like a extraordinary person who doesn't have to play by the rules of regular morality and is allowed to do terrible things if he wants to. 
but but he's only allowed to do at least in his own psychology he's only allowed to do the terrible things because of all the good things he's going to do later that his genius will bring something yes. amazing to the world and one of the things that's holding him back from bringing amazing things to the world is that he doesn't have any money like that is a clear theme is he he thinks that this will give him kind of a a jump start and so that jump start for his genius is is worth more than her life yeah he's also but like he's it's very that's true it's it, he's got like a it's so great it's a total dichotomy he's got his conscious reflected rationalizations and then his subconscious uh fears about his rationalizations that he can't articulate but Dostoevsky does through yeah, how yeah. he explains what's going on in his head because consciously Raskolnikov is saying okay I can it's like part experiment for him too it's like will I go through with my own thesis that extraordinary people like me and like Napoleon can basically murder anyone we want uh, with impunity because we have a plan so like he he's he's kind of hoping that he can just do it to prove to himself that he's that actually his, extraordinary that he's actually extraordinary right yeah and yet again so great because it contrasts the dichotomy between how <laughs> confident you can be in a thought and yet how impotent or unwieldy you can be in an action because the whole murder scene he's like almost vomiting and he's incompetent and like his behavior and his actions manifestly betray his thesis well and he and uh, supposedly part of this is to give him this jump start but he takes the money but he doesn't even look in the purse to see how much money's in the purse like it's obvious that even in his own mind he doesn't have what it takes to do this thing to move to the next level. Well, it's to me that the entire murder scene is the way it's described. It's, it's his subconscious screaming at him to stop. And he just doesn't, you know, like he, so again, he's so like, he's so good at tricking everybody else. And yet the part of him that's just below the surface can't be tricked and hates it, which is, which to me, I think to wrap that all up is the punishment. Because that's what torments him the most of the book is when left to his own thoughts, the little pings of conscience that come in through all of the little things that he can't control about his own brain. Yeah. Well, and that it's obviously driving him mad and and paranoid, rightly so paranoid. And yet he was supposed to this was supposed to be a moment of triumph for him yeah. within his own ideology. But I think that what's so cool about it from like abstracting to like thinking about how that is for people, like how I think it's a neon, it's a, it's a 50 foot neon sign that is warning everybody to be like, Hey, watch your own motivations because you are actually way less aware of what's making you do the things you do than you think you are. And to jump in with both feet kind of confidently and cavalierly, there there are some deeds you can do that don't have a ripcord that you can pull. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it, to me, all of Raskolnikov's reactions subconsciously to his own actions are 
Dostoevsky's warning to humanity about, hey, yeah, tap yeah. into your humility because you are actually capable of doing way worse things than you think if you let your rationalizations trump your more broad-mindedness about yourself. Well, yeah, and I, I love that point, like tap into your, your humility a little bit, but like certitude, like he is certain. Part of what's driving him mad is this battle between his consciousness where he's certain that, oh, you know, he makes these excuses like, oh, people kill other people all the time in war and no one, you know, gets upset about that. And this is just another context in which I'm killing someone or or have killed someone. So what's wrong with this? And like people die or get killed all the time by the actions of great men. And nobody seems to, uh, to bat an eye at that. So why is it different that I, as supposedly a great man, have killed someone? And he's so certain. He's so ideologically certain in this this theory that he's developed, that he's written about, that he's published. That, Which only <clears throat> comes out later in the book. Hey, you don't find that out at the beginning, but but that's what you find out is like kind of like the driving force, uh, this idea of the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary, and, and really believing he's on the other side of that. But that certainty is what causes him to do something truly horrible. Well, horrible... Yes. I mean, <laughs> he's so convinced of his own like double standard, right? Like he he feels like he's entitled to an ethical double standard where it would like so for him it would be wrong for someone like Raz to go and do what he did. Like he would condemn that, yeah. right? Like there's it's a it's a conscious double standard that he's talked about that is all of his rationalizations and like as a story written why this book is so good cognitively and prose style is that a more inferior book would say would give you like okay Raskolnikov did x murder and then he rationalized it but then he felt bad about it also right yeah that's an inferior way of putting it what Dostoevsky does will give you 30 pages of internal torment that Raskolnikov yeah, is yeah. going through about this and kind like of thing. and gives you a sense like when you're reading it you get a sense of the physical torment he's going through too like it isn't just he you know struggling with his conscience he's battling intense intense fear and self-loathing and all these things yeah it's I mean this guy has got to be uh, a psychiatrist wet dream <laughs> like <laughs> yes the amount of like uh, like you could make your career just eight, studying this guy, 85 yeah. times over talking about raskolnikov because of the way that he delivers his thoughts in the prose of the book so some things that i think are interesting that make raskolnikov even more interesting is that before the murders there are a couple things that he does he like helps this drunk girl on a bench right yeah. Like right near the beginning. And so what it is is that we're given like these kind of oblique avenues into his perspective where uh, there's this like girl on the bench being berated by this one guy and she's drunk and this other guy's abusing her and he like tells this guy off and makes him leave and protects this and gets girl. gets a police officer to come over and yeah. And it's kind of like he's... And this is a theme for Raskolnikov. He's a victim of his own reflection. Like it's only when he stops to reflect on things that he starts to do bad things because of his ideology. But when he's 
kind of left to in the moment reactions to things. He often does very kind things for other people in this book. We we find out at the end, one of the things that his mother's told, which uh, as far as we can tell is factual, is that when a house was burning down, he ran in and saved children and he gave all of his money to this family so that they could have a funeral for their, their drunk father who had been run over by a, by a, a cart. Like you're right in his, in his just like subconscious, unreflected unreflected mind he just does good things he, it seems as if really his his core personality is very generous mm-hmm. and yet and so what the corrupting factor is this line of argument that he goes down which i think probably <laughs> people would argue is a forerunner for nietzsche's superman i would say in my opinion that would be a misinterpretation of Nietzsche's intent, but nevertheless, he does only do bad things when he reflects on it, right? Yeah, like it's weird. It's kind of the opposite of the the Christian idea of the sin nature. It's that he's actually good, but he's corrupted by an idea. And I I actually think if you look at human life just in general, we can see good people doing heinous, horrible things because of ideology all the time like because of an idea that they've either produced in their head or has been given to them this happens a lot and perhaps those same people would not have done those if they weren't reflecting on it yeah and so what's so gr- uh, well what's uh, one of the many great things that's so smart about what Dostoevsky did in this character is that he the difference between Raskolnikov's conscious and his subconscious is so stark that you, as we, the audience, get into all of this, we're like, oh my gosh, like this is actually the least competent person of his own motivations because he's got all of this like ironclad, extraordinary person ideology, and yet he's so easily pushed in superstitious ways. So he he's like flirting with this idea of killing the pawnbrokers, right? <clears throat> or the pawnbroker. He's like, oh man. And he's like kind of out in a square or a marketplace just walking around. And he overhears like a merchant talking about them. To the, to the sister. And yeah. he's like, oh. To, yeah, to, like to Lizavita, right? Yeah, to Lizavita. <laughs> As an aside. Who is Alonia's little sister and apparently being abused by Alonia. Like Alonia's not a... Alonia is the woman that he murders or one of the women he murders. But... She's not a good person. Like she treats her her own sister, whereas she, her sister is like an angel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who he also murders. But, but he, uh, the thing is, he takes that conversation between her and the merchant as evidence of, oh, okay, because <laughs> I have heard her talk and heard him talk. Now that's actually grist for the mill. Of yeah, now I have to do this. Well, in- interesting because I was thinking not now I have to do this. Here's my opportunity was the impression that I got. Oh, no one else is going to be there. Her sister's going to be gone during this time. That's the perfect moment to go. Yeah, it's it's like a... It's an open door. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But he... I don't know. I guess I just got an impression from reading it too where he was like... He was a little bit wavering in his subconscious about it. But 
as soon as it's the like, opportunity as soon as the itself, opportunity yeah. presents itself it's like oh okay it's a sign right yeah. like it's yeah. just, it's yeah. like um the universe has conspired in such a manner that now i have to and you know what it kind of reminded me of it's funny it's like um i don't know if this has ever happened to you but when like you're just kind of driving or something if you're listening to the radio or you're in a store and the radio's on and you're thinking about a particular song and then that song comes yeah. on yeah. Right? oh yeah you're like oh my gosh oh, and i it's remember it's a sign from the heavens it's a sign from the, and, as opposed to like <laughs> especially when i was younger i'd be like oh my gosh to me that would be things like oh this is more evidence for some sort of hidden superpower or supernatural power in the world that i can't tap into exactly but like just kind of shows itself in these little ways right as opposed to like now how i would think of it as like well what about <laughs> the hundreds of times i'm thinking about a song and it doesn't come on <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah like yeah. A, as soon as you get even rudimentary statistical education <laughs> you're like oh okay wait <laughs> you know as it, like maybe raskolnikov heard tons of conversations that day about lots of different people that weren't were or weren't around but because it was what he would be he thinking wanted about, yes exactly <laughs> you know, exactly uh, I don't know if that's totally related. It was just a funny little thing that I noticed. I was like, oh, man, it's like he heard the song he was thinking of, and so he thought it was a deeper meaning to it. I've heard it talked about by some psychologists, like focus is a very interesting thing in in the human psyche because 90% of stimuli is just ignored by consciousness, or more than 90. I think it's – I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know the exact number, but a very large percentage of all stimuli is just ignored because – because what you're focusing on is what matters. Uh, and so when you're focused on an idea, you as a human, you're going to you're going to seek out evidence for that idea or things associated with that idea because that's how we understand the world. And it makes so much sense that he's so keenly focused on this idea that he needs to murder someone to get ahead. She's the perfect victim because she's hated by most people. And not only that, she treats her sister badly. And not only that, she has lots of money, which he needs. So she's, so he's, he's been obsessing about this for months and then opportunity presents itself. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, how fortuitous. Yes. Uh, the dominoes all line up. If you, place them without looking you know it, it is it it is it kind of reminds me of what like any of those movies where oh the big twist is that you've been the killer all along and you've been subconsciously putting everything in the way you want it to go so that uh well it's like memento yeah right? it's yeah. totally like memento yeah. <laughs> where he actually puts himself down a path to kill teddy at the end not because he thinks teddy did it but because he wants to he, like he's mad at Teddy in a moment, <laughs> kind yeah, of. and like puts himself down that whole path. Yeah. Because yeah. Of that, yeah. So anyway, the murder scene itself to me is a massively interesting scene because to me, there's no law in human, social, psychological in that arena that is as ironclad as that of the unintended consequence or the unforeseen hiccup. I guess right, and so. It's the perfect contrast. This scene is the perfect contrast in life between what you think is going to happen based on all your planning and all the things. Because the world has so many more variables than one mind can account for, you can bet your bottom dollar on something going wrong just because of intensity of entropy, (laughs) basically, right? Well, and this is even articulated by Dostoevsky in this scene because... 
our main character has been <laughs> uh, has been planning this for months yeah. right he's he's planned out every detail he and and you, even when you're reading it you feel the planning like he knows where he's going to keep the axe so that no one sees that he has the axe he knows when he's going to walk in he's he's got every little de- he knows that he's going to knock and he knows what he's going to give her so she's looking at something he's going to make it hard to unwrap so that he can kill her when she's trying to unwrap it but it's even articulated by Dostoevsky that suddenly the actual being in the moment and the trying to do something is never quite like the planning of that thing. Yes. Oh, like, of course, right? And this is something that I think, like, there's a few lines in the book where Raskolnikov tells himself about it, right? Like, he's like, you have to be ready for your human desire to not <laughs> smoke this woman in the head with your axe, <laughs> basically. But you have to overcome that based on your own ideology. But there's just little things like the day he goes to the building, there's these workers painting in another room. That's just not part of his plan because he couldn't... Because that room was never even you can, occupied. You can't foresee... Like, if you were to actually incorporate into like let's say you had like some sort of big data you were some sort of big data computer that could like predict every potentiality that would take a level of processing that one human doesn't have asimov has a very good short story about this right uh, sure yeah of course right like uh, and and he would (laughs) that would be very asimovian of him to have a good story so things like the extra workers being in the building. So just two other potential witnesses in the building. The big unintended consequence. Oh, <laughs> surprise. Even though Lisa Vita said she wouldn't be there, she shows up. So he has to kill her too, which is honestly the, the most gut-wrenching part of this book is when he very like... And like he's flippantly very, decides, like, yeah, okay, I had to murder well, her too. It, it be, well, it's very of the moment, right? Like he's killed Alionia... She's dead. Lizavita walks in, sees it. There's nothing. He, like, he has to make a split-second decision. And she just is the, so kind and, and quiet and shy. Yeah. So and, as the oh. audience, we're more pissed off that she dies. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, obviously, neither of these women deserve to die. But Lizavita deserved it less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On and, a gradient, if, if, if there's a spectrum yeah. of deserving murder. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, whatever. I was. <laughs> Alionia is pretty fucking oh, shitty. Yeah, yeah like, she's beating her own sister. Like not not preying mur- on not, the poor. Not murder worthy, but like definitely like take her out to a dinner and then never call her again. <laughs> kind of <thing>. just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's at least that. Bad. Yeah, at least that bad. <laughs> and yet, that's the direst unintended consequence that. Raskolnikov faces and then just a handful of things like very immediately after he does it while he's still in the room someone coming to visit the pawnbroker right like out of well, schedule do you remember those the guys that come to visit had actually he had overheard them having a conversation about how she deserved to be murdered and like if someone deserved it she deserved to be killed yeah well it's more in and a they coffee were talking shop about it as a joke, and, yeah well it was correct. more of like a hypothetical question one might <laughs> oh, say <laughs> goes around all around <laughs> Yeah, exactly, right? And so those are just three examples of the unintended concept, like not exactly knowing where the stuff in her apartment is, even though he thought he would know where it is kind of thing. So it takes a little bit longer type of thing. Well, and then there's also this kind of like 
Fortuna that he ends up being able to escape at all. Like, oh yeah, the one guy that leave he's supposed to stay at the top of the stairs. It's like the Dan Brown moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book how he gets where out he of suddenly the house. like escapes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. where um like every little minutia of the other characters. Uh, choices lets him get out of the house without being caught, even though in any realistic situation he, he gets caught. Yeah, he would have just been caught, yeah. But I think I can't overemphasize mu- the thing that I've noticed the most about being alive and the way that people's brains work is if you're going to bet on anything, bet on the things that you don't know about yet in your project that are going to go wrong. And so I have experienced in my life very excitable talk about things and good plans and exciting plans and yet once you start to put those things into motion just things come up that you never could have predicted because of the massive complications of human existence in, in the well, world just and existence social in general or yeah. just just the chaos of the universe the social and the natural world that thwarts every one of your plans right And so, I mean, in one sense, it's kind of therapeutic to admit to the law of unintended consequences so that when they happen, you're not nearly as uh, blown over (laughs) by uh, the fact that the universe doesn't actually have you in the middle of its eye of... (laughs) One of the phrases that I've heard that has been very helpful in my life is that happiness is expectations minus reality right and so often in my life when i've had like huge expectations for an event whatever maybe it's a date maybe it's a a vacation maybe it's a job when i had really high expectations it almost always disappointed because reality could never live up to the imagination yeah whereas when i walked into situations and just rolled with it just being like what are we gonna do let's just experience this moment those have been yeah. my favorite times in life. Well, two great cultural examples of that point is there's that scene in the movie 500 Days of Summer where it's Tom's expectations with going to see Summer again and then the actual reality of the party. And then um, actually the a music video for Precious Illusions by Alanis Morissette is exactly that. Like on half the screen, you see her expectations. Half the screen, you see her... Uh, the reality. Uh, and her... Um, the chorus of that song is these precious illusions in my head did not let me down when I was a kid, (laughs) you know? And it's like the things you carry into your adulthood from your childhood that are hard to let go of. (laughs) But I I guess what I would, would say on that front is the events that I've gone into the life moments I've gone into without expectation, without, without, not, not just without a plan, but without a hope in a sense, just being like, I'm just going to see what happens and mm-hmm. experience this moment. I'm not going to say this is what I want this moment to give me. Those have been the best moments of my yeah. life. Yeah, uh, for sure. I agree to that. And I would just say for this little thought, it strikes me that unintended consequences are kind of like the red lights of life, like red stoplights where you can get pretty mad at them <laughs> when they happen to you. Like, oh shit, why am I hitting all these reds? Or, you realize they're inevitable. <laughs> they're just part of your commute and they're just another thing. That yeah. You have to yeah, overcome. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, so anyway, I guess the next big thing with him is how he, after the murder and he goes into this delirium, right. And how his sanity is like almost 
immediately after the murder, his sanity is deteriorating and he's like kind of losing his mind and he's he's kind of like yelling out things that are nonsensical but slightly related to the murder in his dreams and his delirium and i just thought that it's so interesting that how dostoevsky chose to show that deterioration of his main character in this story to me it's a lot of like yeah, good fucking luck with your ideology if this is what you do. <laughs> because yeah. your, like, I guess, I don't know, autonomic neurological responses are going to be way more powerful than whatever you've written about in the latest, latest social science journal that's been well, published at the other a academics, hundred, 100%, right? 100%. And it's like, it's almost as if Dostoevsky is saying, you know what? There are laws to the universe. There are rules that humans have figured out. There's a reason that we have these guidelines that pretty much everyone agrees on, like don't murder other people, because what it does to you is not something you're going to be able to handle well. Yes, which is, I think, the most interesting thing. I mean, this book is essentially a full run through of psychology and the way it works, like a way a person's brain works, doing something so out of the ordinary, and how all of like the ordinary mechanisms start coming in, like the the evolved moral sense that Raskolnikov has, that he just feels sick to his stomach about what he did, because of you know the millions of years of evolution in him, where but even like, social conditioning, yeah, both, right, right, because what I find so fascinating about what Dostoevsky does here is. He's as you've said, he's he's really giving us a great view of the conscious thought that Raskolnikov is going through. But Raskolnikov is not sorry. He's afraid. Yeah. And he's afraid because he knows that society is gonna take him down. For yeah, this. I, I, I would still maintain that his consciousness is afraid and his subconscious is sorry. Right. Because right. because his well, okay. Look, I don't know exactly how. what are the right words to use. Is it his self? Is it his neurological reaction? Is it biological? If it's so deep down beyond his plan, is it really even fair to say it's part of him? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't, yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm right at the edge of what my vocabulary can take me to determine what is Raskolnikov and what isn't. Well, and that's, <laughs> right? the, that's the genius is, is taking yeah. us to the very edge of our understanding and yeah. saying okay and 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 this is being written and given to us that it takes us to that edge where we're like well do i even understand what his motives are here okay so here here's how here's the like a the only way i can even really start to even begin to articulate this comprehensively is that in my own life i make plans um okay well today after work i am gonna go home and I'm going to record a podcast with my cousin David. And it's going to be a lot of fun because it's something we really enjoy doing. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And if anyone asks me outside of this podcast, what I'm doing today, I'll be like, Oh, you know, my day is mapped out in such a way that after work, I'm driving home to record a podcast. Like that's me in a sense that the word me is the most, I can articulate that to other people, but Outside of all that, I'm driving and, you know, like, <laughs> like it suddenly occurs to me, fuck, my car's really hot. 
you know, and then um, then you roll down the window. Then I roll yeah. down the window, but it's also like, is it myself that feels hot? Like, because it's a neural, like it's a biological reaction to my environment, or having a tough day with a kid, and then it kind of reminds me of just like I just kind of get into a funk, and I would never tell a person, hey, today. I'm planning on getting into a funk because this kid's going to annoy me. And then on the way home, I'm going to feel hot in my car because it's really, it's summertime, right? Like that would be- And then I'll get home and I'll just feel a little irritable. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. That would be a stupid way to describe my plan for the day to another person, especially someone who doesn't know me that well, right? Or it's like we're an acquaintance. And yet, can I really say that- the, the funk that I got into because of a kid that was giving me a hard day and the overheating I was feeling in my car is not me in the sense that planning to report a podcast is me. Like, I don't know how to differentiate those two because they're both, as far as my experience goes, they're equally real. However, only one of them I plan. Yeah. <laughs> only one of them I consider. What, one of those you- three things, only one of them is myself. One of them, one, one of them, you're willing into existence, and all the other you're experiencing, right? And and being, but the things I will, I still experience. Yes, yeah, <laughs> which is right? the, but but one of them is external things acting upon you, and another is you acting upon the universe. Which very right? again, like very interestingly, and is much too complicated a topic. The one I will, or the one I plan, is the, the things we will or plan are the things that people judge or praise us for and yet it's really hard to say that it's more important to my life again i'm losing i I don't even have the right words the the parts of raskolnikov where he plans to murder are him in his willing sense and that's what we judge and yet experientially his torment over it is to him just as real well and it's any feeling he has of his plan does that make sense yeah well it's and 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 it's also comforting the people that love us the most to see that other part of us too not just the plan that the people define us by you're a murderer but when his mother's told the stories about how he saved children or gave all his money to the poor or he did all these things, she's like, oh, that's who he really was. And, like, you're right. It's incredibly difficult to delineate, even for ourselves, what our motives are. And it's actually one of the things I love about this book is that he can't even delineate his rationale for murder. Yeah, he, he he starts when he's talking to Sonia and he's like, well, this is the reason. It's like what mood it. he's in. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> Well, and, and how realistic and common is that to the human experience? Yeah. That your mood can literally be dictating how you're acting, and it might not even be who you want to be, how you want to be. Mm-hmm. It's simply that you're feeling something, and you're allowing that to take over the conscious side. But then again, if we go to Skolnikov, he, his conscious action is evil, <laughs> Yeah, and his conscience drive seems to be evil, but his unconscious seems to be good. So it's it's. But very to good. him, it's not evil because of his rationalization, yes, yes, yes. which I could never stop singing Dostoevsky's praises <laughs> no. for his genius. <laughs> and again, can, like I yeah. would say that the reason Dostoevsky to me is a grade A plus genius is that 
he takes me and I consider myself to be like a pretty thoughtful about these kind of things. He takes my brain to an edge where I, I, I can't even figure out the words I need to use to describe what he's evoking in me, yes. which doesn't yes. happen to me that often. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I often get carried away in my own verbosity. So to be, <laughs> to be bereft of it, it's actually exhilarating. Yeah. Like reading Dostoevsky is exhilarating because of how he takes my brain to a place where I can't even figure out what I think about this. Yeah. However, something that is so powerful about this is that he manages to give you a profile of a person that because it's so there's so many angles coming in about Raskolnikov that you realize, oh my gosh, like Dostoevsky is writing about things like socialism and communism, you know, 40 years before they happen in the Soviet Union. Like he's predicting the Bolsheviks yeah. often in well, his he's stories. He's predicting the, the danger of ideas. Yes. Because uh, the dream that he has at the very end, do you remember the dream? It kind of. That Raskolnikov has? He, he has this dream where everyone gets infected. Yeah. But it's not by a virus of of medical or um biological it's uh well it's memes it's dawkins idea of memes that right. infect people and then cause them to become these violent terrible beings yeah it reminded me of the great solzhenitsyn quote from you know the 70s where he wrote people can only, i'm paraphrasing because i can't remember it verbatim but the gist of it is you can only get people to do horrible things on mass with ideology. Yeah, well, because yes. because any like Jeffrey Dahmer or any serial killer, these people are terrible, but they're pretty isolated because they don't have like an ethos. <laughs> it, it reminds <laughs> it reminds me of that great of the big scene Lebowski. of the Big Lebowski <laughs> yeah. where say what you will about uh, democratic socialism, <laughs> but at least it has an ethos. Yeah, where Walter <laughs> is like realizing that there's nihilists chasing them he's like what you know <laughs> they don't even have an ethos yeah. yeah and so he's just seeing all these things way before it was uh sexy to see all of them right and which is amazing because he's writing in you know the 1850s 60s 70s he's predicting a zeitgeist instead of uh, analyzing a zeitgeist exactly he's able to do that politically as well as be so intimately f familiar with the human mind uh, in this book. Actually, in a sense, it reminds me of Steinbeck a little bit, where he can go macro micro so well that you don't even notice the uh, the oscillation. Yeah, it's very true. Um, so there's a few other things about Raskolnikov that I still that we need to, I think, bring up because he comes back to his right mind when he has tasks. Like things that he can be, and this is like, uh, we talked about this the other day, like this thing I call the objective or subjective stance, whereas like this, uh, <laughs> I mean, this, this idea is already out there, but it's like flow. If you're in the state of flow, you know, like an athlete or a musician or something like you're, do, you're in the middle of an art project or something, like you're in the subjective stance, you're so into it. And then when you're analyzing or talking about things, you're in the objective stance and when he can get back into the subjective stance where he's just doing things for other people, he's actually like, that's how he gets his sanity back in yeah. this book, right? Yeah. And there's something really interesting there about, I think that there's part of a really healthy lifestyle psychologically is to have hobbies, tasks, like physical, tactile things that you do with your hands and your feet. For me, it's really 
really psychologically helpful to just sit down every day for like 15, 20 minutes and play guitar or grow and throw a Frisbee, play ultimate Frisbee kind of thing. And I think that these are the little, again, little nuggets that Dostoevsky notices about people that kind of bring you back to kind of an equilibrium that helps you <laughs> through your shitty... Through, um, your, through your murder that you just committed. <laughs> yeah. And so like the last kind of... The, the last two main things just about Raskolnikov are both his argument for and his kind of like pathetic desire for this kind of superiorism that he's projecting, right? Where there's this extraordinary man and ordinary man and extraordinary men get this extra license <laughs> to go do whatever the fuck they want in a way that it would be immoral for the ordinary man to do. And just as a quick aside, it reminded me of there's a... Hitchcock film called Rope, I think, or The Rope. I think it's called Rope. And I think it's loosely based on that case. I can't remember exactly. I think it's called Leopold and Loeb in the United States history where, at least in the movie, these two guys murder this third guy because they say that they're just testing Nietzsche's theory of the overman. Where, like, basically you get to be literally better than someone and there's no there's no better way to dis- to show that than like you get to murder you someone, get to kill right? someone well i think and i think that was an actual case leopold yeah. love was an actual well case. it wouldn't surprise me but because i like as we've talked about earlier ideology can make you do all kinds of things but there's something to be said for that i mean and nietzsche is the guy who pointed this out before um, the idea of slave morality, before the idea that you know weakness is noble, nobody thought that, that anyone thought the strong do what they will, like Plutarch, right? The strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. That was basic humanity. That's how you it was live. An ethos. That was an ethos. And <laughs> and if you look at the Greek myths, you look at the Roman myths. It's all about strength and power, and that's it. There's no value to human life outside of hierarchy. So it's not as if we're encountering a theory that is unique and new. This is old as time itself. Like the idea of people think that that racism, for example, is just creating the other and making them smaller. But there's an idea older than racism, which is just like, if I'm strong and you're weak, then I win and I rule and I'm the powerful. And and it's not very just, dark sidingly. There's probably something in evolution, yeah, for that impulse. Yeah, well, I mean, look at, at the animal kingdoms. Yeah, the strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. Like that's a nature, right? And and civilization has overcome nature in that sense. Uh, but the idea that he's wrestling with here is not a unique and new cool idea. No. And I think actually Dostoevsky kind of points that out. He's articulated like, well. It's articulated. Maybe the it. best. Yeah. This might be the best articulation of that superiorism in a story, at least to that point in time. And and, and uh, taking it down to an individual level. So going back to the extraordinary versus ordinary, I think this is something we all struggle with. Like the the idea to be extraordinary, the idea idea to be better and different. We're always trying to define ourselves as unique and special, and or not. I'm not saying that everyone's trying to do that, but I think a lot of people are. And there's a huge freedom that can come from the realization that 
part of your uniqueness and your specialness comes from your relationships, not from your personhood. It's totally because Raskolnikov is at his best in his relationships, even though he hates them, <laughs> or at least he says he. Well, at least is, subconsciously, like even in his mind, he isn't saying he hates them even verbally, although yeah. he's expressing it. He's literally mentally saying, and I, I, I'm sure many listeners have been through, you know, mental illness and most people a lot of people have gone through things like that where you're basically like you're saying you hate in your own mind the people that you love but yeah of course right but he's at his best in this book when he's relating to his sister to sonia and to raz yeah like when he's actually in some sort of dialogue slash interconnection with those three people is when he's firing on all cylinders as like a person you would almost even want to be friends with like he's pretty unlikable. Only when he gets like top cylinder, though. Yeah. Like for me, when I was reading this, I was like, I I hate this guy. Like yeah. he's just awful. But that's because you do, as an audience, we have access to the the deepest innermost thought. True. You imagine true. imagine someone like Raz who doesn't have that, who just gets a really awesome because Raz brings it out in Raskolnikov. You get the best version of this person in you know the handful of times in a week where you see him. Oh, this is my buddy. There's a, there's a scene that really bothered me in this book. So basically, uh, Raskolnikov is saying to Raz, he's like, I don't want to hang out with you. I'm not coming to the party that you invited me to. Like, yeah. and, he, and he's just kind of like shitting on Raz and basically being like, you're stupid. Your friends are stupid. I don't want to be a part of it. Just leave me alone. I'm tired of you guys. And Raz is just continually inviting him and saying, I expect to see you there. I'm going to see you there. You're going to come. And I'm like... For me, and maybe this might be a mental deficiency in me, but when I'm reading it, I was just like, oh, I hate this guy. Like, mm-hmm. And yet, you're right, Raz is like loving on this guy and wants to hang out with him and sees the potential, like you pointed out. But I'm just like, I hate this guy. Like, he is just such an asshole. Yeah, to asshole to the person who least deserves it. Yeah, to like him. to the pe- person who's treating him with the most love. Not only that, not just a person who's like a good friend. A guy who sat with him through his sickness for four days. <laughs> yeah, true. Bought him clothes, true. like took care of him. And like, yet, this is it's so complicated because there's other parts in the book where he really sticks up for him and helps him. You yeah, know? like there's well, like, and, he's, and like he's like, yeah, you you should marry my sister. Yeah, like, you should take care of my yeah. sister who you love. Yeah. What this book helped me remember is a differentiation that I think is worth making in our vocabulary. When everyone you not everyone when anyone uses the term elitist. Everyone kind of knows what it's mean and why what it means and why it's supposed to sting, right? I would say that when people use the term elitist, they should actually use the term superiorist. Because to me, I want to maintain the term elite for people who are excel at something. Yes, or... who are a high level at a form of excellence. So to me, Connor McDavid is elite at hockey. So he's technically speaking, he's elitist right like he he should be right like that's the way i'd prefer to use the word i know that that's not how it means but i think it's a useful distinction because i think that the definition i would give for the superiorist is that they think their time a superiorist thinks their time is more important to them than your time is to you right so like your time can never be important to me as my time is to me that's just the like human default David Foster Wallace 
the world is all around me. I'm the center of it all the time. Like, there's just no way yeah, I can. All of my experience, everything happens in front of me. Yes. Everything happens to the right or the left of so me. So I can never care about your time just because of my psychology. I can't care about your time more than I can care about my time. But I can, <laughs> and I thou mayest <laughs> have the cognitive ability to understand that your time is as valuable to you as my time is to me right so the like heuristic i give it is that the superiorist has no problem going budging in line at the bank or something because their time to them is more important than your time is to you, and you may right? even you may even call them perhaps the egotist, sure, the the, the, the person who is so consumed by themselves, which, as you pointed out, David Foster Wallace makes clear, is easy to do. It's the default setting. Yeah, we see this with Raskolnikov in that he, ah, he he is so obsessed with himself. Yeah, that if people knew what he was thinking about internally. No one would love him or be nope. his friend. Well, that's why he keeps most of it to himself. I don't even know if that's why he does. Well, I, I, even I, his actions are so negative to everyone. Like. Yeah, but I think his subconscious reveals a little bit of the reason. Like, yes. Anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so if you'll pardon the joke, make elitism great again. <laughs> <laughs> always. Yeah. So Raskolnikov is a pure superiorist. Yeah. And then anyway, I wanted to. I, I had one other kind of cultural connection I wanted to make is that there's a line where he uses page 399. I can't remember who he's talking to exactly. I think he's probably talking to Sonia. 399, just make sure they know which version. Of the Signet. Yeah, of the Signet. I think he's talking to Sonia. I can't remember. <laughs> but he's talking to someone. And he there's a direct verbatim quote where he says, I killed for myself alone. Yeah, that, he's talking to Sonia. Yeah. yeah. And so... It reminds me of the finale episode of Breaking Bad where Walter White finally admits to Skylar in that last scene where he has with Skylar, he admits to her because throughout the whole show of Breaking Bad, he's saying, I'm well, doing it for, I'm my, doing for family, my family. Yeah. I did it for you. And then finally, in the last episode, in the last time he converses with his wife, he says, no, I, I did it for me. I I did it for me. I was good at it, and I liked it, you know. And he I am and, the danger. Yeah, I well, am the one that knocks. <laughs> well, that was while well, he was still in I know, denial I know, mode. But I but I, I like. <laughs> I think he's actually in that moment going to Breaking Bad, expressing that he is doing it for himself. Right? Yes, he's flipping to that. Well, no, he's. I am the danger. He's making it obvious to others. Yes, like that's the moment it becomes obvious to Skyler. But it's and not to the us. moment he admits it to himself. To himself, true, true, right? Yeah. Or, or at least he maybe has admitted it to himself earlier. But this is when we get it as the audience, and I just love that kind of because a lot of Raskolnikov's rationalization prior to this moment in the book is, well, I'm kind of doing it in a weird way for science. Like I'm kind of doing this murder as part experiment to it's just sociological. Like, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, this am is, I extraordinary? Yeah. Because, and, and he does ask himself that he's like, yeah, well, I thought that if I could do this and I could move forward, then I would prove that I'm one of the extraordinary ones. And this is the weird part for me. Anyway, he's like, remember when we were talking earlier about rudimentary understanding of statistics, right? And he's like, 
maybe one in a thousand is born interesting. Maybe one in a hundred thousand is born successful. Maybe one in a million is born great. And maybe one in a hundred million is born like extraordinary or something. Right. And to have the audacity (laughs) to think, well, I'm the extraordinary one. I'm the one that rules don't apply to. Well, that's part of his superiorism. Yeah. Right? Right. My point on that is he's not admitting it to himself. Yeah. No, he's... Which I think the moment you do would would almost axiomatically have to be the moment you take your foot off the gas from it, right? Because like that kind of almost ironical self-reflective moment would take the wind out of your sails to do the thing you were doing. Like, I don't think Walter White could have been as ruthless as he was if he was saying, no, I'm just doing this for my own ego thrills. No, true. Like, maybe only a psychopath can do that. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I think to go through with a lot of it, he needs his illusions. So then Raskolnikov pretty much bookends (laughs) this book you might say he's there the whole time and he's definitely the focus but to me for my money the best character and the most laudable is good old Razumikin Mr. Raz right Razumikin and so this is how Dostoevsky describes him early on in the book this is before the murder even so this is our first introduction to Raz Uh, Dostoevsky writes of him No failure daunted him, and unfavorable circumstances seemed unable to keep him down. So I just wrote, who wouldn't want a friend like this? And that's something to strive to be, where he, you know, again, before it was a trope, you can't keep a good man down kind of thing. Raz's emotional resiliency in this book is so impressive to me. His loyalty and his commitment to Raskolnikov and his commitment to his uh, Raskolnikov's family and... I would say even to me, so probably like other, even though I know it's better to be loyal to people, his loyalty to humor is just as impressive to me as anything he does because he is, he's the kind of guy that brings levity to a funeral kind of thing. Not at an inappropriate moment and not literally like this doesn't happen in the book, but he's the kind of guy that could, can make, knows how to crack the right joke at the right time to ease tension and to get people feeling connected with each other. And, you know, like that kind of aura you feel at a good party where there's someone connecting the room, you know? Like that's Razumakin. Yeah. And so he's got that social ability, but he's also got the one-on-one individual ability to give a person what they need when they need it, even if they're not grateful for it, which is taking care of Razumakin when he's so sick that he can't and delusional that he Mm -hmm. can't even function and then he's like feeding him soup and like making sure he has tea going and getting him nicer clothes yeah taking care of the financial situation and the very first time we're introduced to him in the book he's offering Razonikov he's offering him work he's like and he's like I'll just give you this money right now if you just say that you'll do this yeah like he's so open-hearted and also his business idea that he has about like publishing and he's he's got a bit of an entrepreneurial mind Mm -hmm. and 
but he's not entrepreneurial in a greedy sense. He's entrepreneurial in a bring value to sense. the world bring, sense and bring value to those around me sense. Like mm-hmm. let's do this together. Yeah, and, and we even see that with kind of at the end where he's deciding what he's going to do when he ends up with um, Rogoznikov's sister. He's like, oh well, we'll we'll move to Serbia and like kind of live outside the work camp eventually as well. Until he gets out, because like we'd love him, yeah. Even though we know now he's a horrible murderer, <laughs> like, <laughs> premeditated, like, premeditated and unrepentant, first degree murderer <laughs> yeah, yeah, of like, two people. Yeah, like. yeah. Well, I got the impression from reading this book that Razumikin was essentially the character that Dostoevsky felt himself to be. Oh, like interesting. Dostoevsky himself, like I felt like Raz, at least maybe not like, here's my personality. I'm going to put it into a character. Like, I don't know if it is exactly the same, but I think that philosophically Dostoevsky, like Razumikin was Dostoevsky's mouthpiece in this book, because not just in this book, but especially in Dostoevsky's novel uh, on translation. Sometimes it's called Demon. Sometimes it's called The Demon. That whole book is a warning against Marx (laughs) and Marxism, right? Or at least like the incipient growings of the socialist theory in Russia. And one of Raz's great lines is, if a man, like singular, if a man's all right, there's a principle for you, right? So very early on and like throughout the book, uh, Razumikin's... I don't know, modus operandus is the individual, right? Like he at no time has time for the group, the committee, the totality, like the many people together. He's like, no, just give me, I don't, like, it is true. Like he's, he's encouraging Raskolnikov a lot just because of his own ability, not because of whatever connections he has or anything like that. And so that's why I, I just, I I guess I try to, connected some dots there that maybe aren't there but it's like how because raz is so committed to the individual that's what made me think that's what actually was dostoevsky's and like and and view as well raskolnikov he doesn't feel that way about people at all in fact there's there's moments in the book there's discussions in which he says oh i don't like that guy he's got all these problems and we actually see this his immediate reaction to almost everyone is negativity Whereas we don't see that with Raz at all. Raz is very much like, oh, I like this person. Oh, yeah, he's got these flaws and, and literally says these things. Like, he's like, I got these flaws. They've got these flaws, but I, I like them. They've, mm-hmm. And uh, they add flavor to the goodness that he And the sees. other thing I really like about Raz is he, he loves debate. And he's like, well, the things they're saying are ridiculous in this debate, but like maybe we'll eventually get to something. Maybe we'll like come to some kind of enlightenment by just sitting around and talking about this stuff. Well, David, we've just hit on, uh, we've hit serendipity pay dirt here yeah. because this is exactly the paragraph I'm reading. Oh, now. perfect. So perfect. ladies and gentlemen, you are getting a really true fiction first here. <laughs> I've never done this before and neither has David where I'm actually going to read an entire paragraph. Here we go. From a book because there's a great section where uh, Raskolnikov, uh, not Raskolnikov, Rezmukin is um like okay the reason i respect uh, raz 
is his philosophical stance on individualism as it lines yeah. up with my own. The reason I love him is for his total commitment to banter yeah. oh. and silliness and talking about things that don't matter, but actually totally matter because of the happiness and joy that they well, and he enjoys it so much. Yeah. Okay, so, so yes, read this Here's paragraph. the paragraph uh, from page 194 of the Signet. So, do you think... Razumakin cried out, raising his voice still higher. Do you think I care if they talk nonsense? Hogwash, I love nonsense. Talking nonsense is man's only privilege that distinguishes him from all other organisms. If you keep talking big nonsense, you will get to sense. I am a man, therefore I talk nonsense. Nobody ever got to a single truth without talking nonsense 14 times first. Maybe even 114 that's all right in its own way. We don't even know how to talk nonsense intelligently, though. If you're going to give me big nonsense, better make it your own big nonsense, and I'll kiss you for it. Talk nonsense in your own way. That's almost better than talking sense in somebody else's. In the first case, you're a man. In the second, just a parrot. Sense will always be there, but life can be fenced in. There have been some sad cases. Well, what about us now? We are all, without exception, I tell you, in science, thought, culture, engineering, ideals, aspirations, in our liberalism, reason, experience, everything, 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 we still sit in the freshman class in high school. We would rather live off other people's ideas. That's what we're used to. Not so. Isn't that what I'm really saying so? Razumikin shouted, shaking and squeezing both the ladies' hands. Isn't it so? And the best part is he's super drunk in this scene. <laughs> like, well, yeah, of but course. He's making, <laughs> but he's making a great point. That's where a passion comes out. Yeah. Well, what is it? In, in vino veritas? In wine truth? I completely agree. His, That's the best part about him is he loves people for who they are. And we see this in his love for his best friend, and we, but we see this in his love for all the friends that he gathers. He's a gatherer of people. He's always trying to have people over to have these crazy discussions, right? Yeah. But his love for people is rational in the sense that he understands that part of this social nonsense creating mm-hmm. can get to truth. Well, and I mean, a major part of that, the philosophy of it, is interesting also in that passage because he talks that actually talking nonsense gets you to sense. Even if you have to talk nonsense 14, nay, 114 times. It reminded me of another really cool idea from Nietzsche in in his book, The Gay Science, where, again, not verbatim, but Nietzsche says, you can only truly analyze something after you've well and thoroughly laughed at it. Yeah. Right? And like yeah. after something has become an object of humor, then it can become an object of analysis. Because if you try to analyze before you've laughed at it, you're putting it too serious. <laughs> Whereas if you've laughed at something, okay, now that the piss has been taken out of it, you can actually Yeah, we we get that this thing is not actually that important. We're all on the same page about that. Now we can talk about it as if it were. kind of thing as opposed to like this idea that you don't really you can't pretend like it's not important like it's you know nothing sacred and then (laughs) analysis right yeah uh but like for me personally i think about some of the best 
most revelry-laden nights of my life have consisted of just sitting around like a backyard or a bar with a group of people that I'm really comfortable and close with, just shooting the shit about nothing important and everything interesting. And I think most specifically of times in Korea, just bantering with people at the bar about you name it. It doesn't matter. Like our <laughs> our shitty half-baked opinions on movies or particular styles or fads. And then like just taking them to areas that are never going to be guessed at. And I have a, a really, really close good friend named Stu from Korea that I adore every time I talk with him. Just because our gateway to friendship is always just the milieu of the weird social world and like any friends we talk about our lives but mostly our bonding comes from talking about the absolute silliness and again another super important emersonian idea of a true friend is someone who knows how to keep the conversation going oh right so Who, true who knows how to who knows the next thing you're hinting at that you don't even know yourself is hinting at and can take you there, right? Uh, a friend, and that's what something Razmukin can do. Yeah, well, he can do that. Yeah, and he even brings Raskolnikov out of his shell at times by doing that. But one of the things I was going to say that a, that a friend once told me is a friend is someone who sings the song of your heart when you have forgotten it. Yes, and like when you're saying continuing a conversation, I, I find the older I get. Sometimes it can be difficult to keep people going in conversation, but like a real friend, like you said, is someone who just pulls you out and says, let's keep this going. I know the things you care about. <laughs> who knows the next right hypothetical yeah. to bring up, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. And I mean, this is a little juvenile, but someone makes a joke. Oh, well, you know, that's just like boning an old lady and like, oh, that's gross. But then your friend is like, well... What if she was Helen Mirren, <laughs> right? And then, and then you're like, well, then yeah, but it's like, but what if it was Helen Mirren, but she had jaundice? <laughs> you know, it's like then you keep adding all of these variables <laughs> yeah. onto like this. And keep the conversation, keep it going. going yeah. But like, yeah, but what if the jaundice was recessive and you couldn't see it? We just knew it, yeah. like whatever, right? Yeah, like, it's yeah, like, yeah. What disease wouldn't you do? <laughs> you know, like it just playing with that nonsense. And uh, who knows? Maybe that conversation gets you to your dream girl, right? <laughs> do, do you ever find... Recessive jaundice, 70 years plus. The, Throw me that. in, coach. I'm ready to be in love. <laughs> I, I am almost certain jaundice is not just a <laughs> genetic... No, I'm pretty... Yeah, it seems like a... Hey, uh, hey, David, I don't know anything about disease or medicine. Should we just <laughs> talk about it like we do? Yeah. Let's Why do not? It. Nonsense. Maybe we'll but you know, like, the, it's... To me, one of life's chief higher order pleasures is that talking nonsense right. with someone who is intelligent enough to know how to talk nonsense and why you're doing it. Right. Right. You know? And the, that friend is scarce but precious in my experience. And yet we see that Raz is really thoughtful. He's not just funny, right? Like, because we have we all have those friends who are just like always joking a lot, the life of the party, but they're not ever serious. But with Raz, he has some serious theories and ideas about life, and ideas about, and he and he can articulate his rational disagreement with an idea like socialism, which he frequently does throughout this book, or his rational ideas around crime, 
included. Yeah. yeah. Well, you brought up his um, distaste, let's say, for the socialists. Yes. Of his time. And that was like, to me, that was the part of him that I found had the most gravity. Again, like the most electrifying truths you come across. They're the ones you already know, but you can't articulate. And then yeah. they're articulated, right? You, you said that in a podcast before, and I, I just like to reiterate that. I think great friendship is singing the song of your heart when you've forgotten it. Mm-hmm. Great writing is telling you the idea that you've always known and never been able to say. Yeah. And so what uh, Razumukin says about socialism, his his deepest critique, and this would be my deepest critique of the socialist or communist or exceedingly left-wing economic political mindset is that he says a living soul isn't called for. So Raz's biggest complaint about the socialists, their level of analysis is at the political and doesn't need anything like a depth of personality in a rich and meaningful inner life to be worthwhile. So for the socialist, as soon as you solve the economic problem, you've solved every problem and then life will just take care of itself. And I think my opinion on this is that if you're a person with any sense, you just know that that's not true. You still have to then begin to start solve the meaning problem and the existential problem and the like, how do I go about finding relationships and treating other people? The things that are apolitical that actually matter way more to people than the political things do. But you latch on to the political things because there's, as it were, right or wrong answers, whereas the muddiness of there's a living... Black, there's a black and a white. The muddiness kind of, of living well, or as Aristotle uh, puts it, developing eudaimonia, the good life, the well-lived life with reading the right books, making the right friends, spending your time in a way where you don't go home at night feeling like, what the fuck did I just do with my day? Like, I wasted my time. Like, those things have nothing to do with politics, right? And this is something that Rasmukin's pointing out, is that the problem with the socialists is that they think that once you solve... And it's not that... This is what I think about this, is that I am very... like. I don't even, it sounds trivial. Like in my heart, I care about people's plights and solving deep and hurtful economic realities is important to me. And it's, it's something that needs to be done. To me, it's one of many things that needs to be done where it feels like for, especially the, uh, as George Orwell would call it, the coffee drinking, sandal wearing socialist. (laughs) Um, Once you, solve that problem um you've solved every problem and now you wash your you wash your hands hey goodness done in the world figure it out you know john jacques rousseau had everything right no that's not the case and this is actually the same uh critique i bring against social justice warriors is that i find their arguments to be necessary but not sufficient for a good life and for them, it feels like it's sufficient and then even more sufficient. So I don't know if I've used this analogy on the podcast before, but to me, when Captain Marvel came out, I don't know if we talked about Captain Marvel before. I don't the, think we did. The event, like the MCU movie, right? Yeah. Uh, where it's the first Marvel movie with a female lead superhero. And of course, all of the woke folk 
are claiming this as a massive moral victory <laughs> for Hollywood to finally, like, you know, have told another story. And it's like, for me, I'm like, yeah. But the thing is, like, I don't care <laughs> that it's a female lead. What I care about is, is it a good story? Whereas if you are just a purveyor of Twitter, it's like, okay, Brie Larson is Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel's the next MCU movie. Hands washed. We've done it. We, we did the thing. And all I'm saying is like, actually, no, all you've done is now got to the starting line. Now you still have to make a movie that gives something to a living soul. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, I'm not like, I liked Captain Marvel. I thought it was on balance, a good movie. I thought Wonder Woman was a great movie, but Wonder Woman was a great movie because of because how it, it develops to a living soul. Yes. Right. Yes. As opposed to, oh, female lead. So when it comes to gender or racial representation in movies, yeah, that's fine. It doesn't matter to me. Like if there's just a movie where the female lead is there, that's fine. It's great. But make a good movie still. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And this is the fundamental problem I find with the woke social justice warriors in the world is that from the point of view of aesthetics, especially, and more controversially in ethics too, they think that it, it seems to me like the idea is as soon as you've gotten to the table of, okay, representation, hey, that's, that's goodness. Whereas like, no, you actually now are just starting to live. <laughs> Right? And you need to get into those post-political things that are actually the deepest parts of life. And that's why I love Razumukin, is that he's noticing that too. A living soul is not called for in this ethos. And I want to live, both Razumukin and me, Luke Mason, I want to live where a living soul is called for. Well, and, and Raz goes into this about the environment, right? Because this, this goes back to that old psychological question, which it seems before psychology Dostoevsky was consumed with, is nature versus nurture. Is it the environment that produces the reality of your life or is it your character, your personal choices? What is it how you're raised? And he goes into this and he says, if it's just the environment, if all it takes is changing the environment, then then we don't really matter. Like it's like you said, there's no individual. There's no meaning. And no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, that the human spirit, yeah, like the beauty, uh, the the good, the true, and the beautiful. If we're pursuing those things, which I think we should be, then we shouldn't be pursuing power. Because Marx is obsessed with power. Who has power? How do you get power? How do you give power to different people? And it's power, 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 power all the time. And, I mean, Orwell, I think this is his greatest critique of society in general, is saying in 1984 power for power's sake was the end result and only desire of the party right within the world that he created there was nothing else it wasn't power to do something and i think that's where the social justice stuff ends and where it becomes a problem because it's not that they're like we want to get power to do things differently or to produce something different in the world or to have some vision of the world it's that injustice has been done and it needs to be uh, rectified and to be rectified the only way you can rectify it is by taking the power from the people who have it and giving it to someone else 
But the truth of history, if we look at history, the victim always becomes the victimizer when they're given power. It's, it's The tables are not evened, they're turned. Exactly. And really, at least in my mind, and uh, if you're given power, really it's about revenge. If all you're seeking is power, you're seeking power for the sake of getting revenge on the people who had power over you. Yeah. And that is an ugly, ugly trait. Well... It's not going to end, <laughs> to uh, quote the, that great philosopher Daenerys Targaryen, that's not going to break the wheel. No, no. <laughs> right? That's just going to make someone else be the one on top of the wheel or turning it. I can't remember how the metaphor works. Well, but, yeah, <laughs> but the point is, yeah. But someone, you, you probably get the it. The wheel right? will stay there yeah. and it will just crush people. That's why the humanism of people like Steinbeck, of people like Emerson, of people like Dostoevsky is so important because the individual is the only unit of society that you can truly... It's the most fundamental. I call the individual the atom of society. You have to treat people as individuals, not as members of groups. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, we're a tribal... We evolved to be tribal. Sociology has created tribalism within us. Like There is tribal traits that's biological yeah but that's why you have to be an individual yeah it shouldn't be well my tribe was oppressed by your tribe so now i'm going to oppress your tribe or i'm going to take power away from your tribe so again just as as an interesting aside the arguments against communism and socialism that are generally given by people who are opposed to those ideas because of a partisan reason i find boring Right. Like just staunch conservatives saying, but, you know, freedom and equal like economic freedom and markets and like trickle down economics. Yeah, pe- yeah. People who it doesn't seem to me like think very deeply about this kind of stuff either. They're just on the other side of the fence because they were born in a family that said they were on the other side of the or, fence. Or because they were simply convinced by stupidly small minded arguments. Sure. Which like people are. But again, why I love. Rasmukin slash what seems to me Dostoevsky is he's making the argument from uh, the wellspring of the human soul. Yeah. Which is what I think. And like, look at the kind of art. <laughs> I said that with quotations and style and aesthetics of the Soviet Union. It doesn't really make the heart explode and soar, does it? You know, those buildings and those propaganda posters and then when you learn about what people who thought in a heterodox manner were the way they were treated and that kind of thing, and you're like, well, you know what? I think that regardless of any of the ethical impulses I feel in Marxism, which I do feel, like I feel, like I do, like every time I see someone begging for money on the street, it does hurt my heart. But I feel like one of the really massive gains my maturity and my even I would say my liberalism has gained in the last few years of my life is realizing that you don't fix deeply seated human problems with panacea ideologies because they won't work it's fundamentally like there's so much human nature going in the other direction and you don't you don't want to become well i i to me communism is the vaccination that's actually the contagion kind yeah, of thing yeah and uh i mean there's there's so many things to say about this but i think the thing that that always strikes me most is 
to assume that human choice does not have an impact on human outcome. That the choices you make will have an impact on the life that you live. It's predeterminism, right? Yeah. And it is, it's taking away the excitement of being alive because you can make mistakes. I mean, in the words of Magic School Bus, you know, make mistakes get messy, right? Like, me, me. <laughs> like, we might as well not even be alive if, if it's all about conforming. And not only that, utopian ideology, I think, is one of the most easily subsumed because to, to view the world and to look, look out into the world and say, there is a perfect place that we can go. That's a dream you can sell to people, right? Especially people who life hasn't gone the way they want. The, one of the, my favorite quotes is, most people die with their songs still in them, left unsung. And I think a lot of that is because you you misinterpret the world. You, 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 you no longer live as an individual. You so subsume the zeitgeist of the culture that you live in. This is how you should live. This is the things you should want. And then you don't get them and you get discouraged. Yeah. And you start to break down and you start to worry about, you start to believe that you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. What is good enough? <laughs> good enough for what? But well, I believe that's that's one of the 12 rules of Jordan Peterson. Don't compare yourself to others today. Compare yourself to yourself in previous yeah. or in the past. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like in a, in a world of Instagram and Facebook and what all of the many social media platforms that we exist on, Tinder, Bumble, whatever, it's all image-based. It's all, it's all projection-based. It's not even experience-based anymore. It's projection-based. And honestly, who cares? Like, well, I still uh, choose to believe people are smarter than that. Upon reflection, a lot of people will, if they are able to be honest with themselves, can admit, at least admit that it's not the ideal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is why I still want to live to find a way to make the soul live. Yes. <laughs> You know? to, to not be a projection, but to be a, yeah. an internal reality. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's. I think in one level, I'm talking about things way out of my depth. But at the same time, I really am interested and care about it. So I like to go to things like Marxism or the or art or aesthetics to just you know give out my impressions. But there's one other thing about Razumuk, and I want to bring up because one of the there's two little things that are related is that he likes Dunya. He likes Raskolnikov's sister. Oh no, he doesn't like her. He's in love. Okay. With well, yeah, he's in love with <laughs> yeah. her, but he's embarrassed about it. Right. But this was the best part is that he's embarrassed at what he said to the ladies while he was drunk. Like the next day, he's really embarrassed about it. And I was like, Oh God. Okay. How many times have I woken up after a night of lots of beer and thought like, Oh fuck. I know I said something kind of, shitty to someone somewhere it's like that sinking feeling oh, you get where, there's nothing and like and the thing is like probably the thing that you think was so embarrassing or shitty is like has barely registered for someone else right but it's just like it kind of eats you up and you're like ashamed of it i don't know there should be a specific word for like well, it's like our grandma always said you know 
if you're always thinking about what other people think of you, you'll be surprised how little they do. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good way to... That, yeah, yeah, that's a good heuristic, too. However, I, <laughs> you know, like the... It could be like a drunk drunk texting or like, oh, yeah. or even like for me, the little, one of the things I've done in my life that I, almost every time it's ever happened to me, I wake up the next morning feeling like, oh, what I say is like, I'll send a message to someone I have a crush on or something, oh, yeah. you know, and it's, and it's, and it's like, in uh, my mind, it's always worse than the actual thing I wrote. In if- my mind, I wrote something like, God, I love you. And I I think we'd be so good together. And what I actually wrote is like, Hey, I think you're nice. Just missed you at the last party. <laughs> you know, like something really innocuous or something. Man, I wish those were the like... things I wrote. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, I'm sure I did worse I, I envy too. you right now. But then, well, the point is it doesn't matter how bad or not bad it yeah, is yes, because yes. the feeling is the same. It's the almost is the same, same, right? It's like I could write the most bland type of message and i still wake up feeling like oh crap i invaded this person's like consciousness unsolicited and i feel bad about that because now now they're only conversing with me because out of politeness not out of desire yeah (laughs) you know and i only ever want people to converse with me out of desire not politeness so if i ever feel like it's i don't know like this is actually a more interesting rabbit hole to go down like I actually have a bias where I only want people to talk to me because they ever want to, not because they feel like they have to. Mm. Now that might seem obvious, like that. Oh yeah, duh. But I think that confession, like I, there are people I know in my life that I only am pleasant to because I have good manners, not because I actually care about being pleasant to them. Yes, <laughs> you yes. know. And so, one of maybe my insecurities is the fear that some people do that to me. Oh, people for sure probably do that to you. Yeah. Like that's but well, okay. So it would be nature. it would be my fear. My insecurity would be people that I want to talk to me because they want to are talking to me out of manners. But I think that's just a fear of rejection. Sure, right? I mean, and I think that's I guess so. Yeah, one of like, the most fundamental fears that people have <laughs> is like someone you want to want you doesn't want you, and not even in a romantic way. No, right? No. Like in yeah. any type of like authentic human connection way. Well, on that sense, I'll, I'll say like one of my big things on a sociological level that's all I've always struggled with, which is I guess I can even tie this back to the book is when you really care about how a friend, say, values you and like losing them would feel catastrophic. Yeah. And then, and then they treat you like maybe even just slightly differently than they normally do. And suddenly you're like, oh. They must not like me anymore, mm-hmm. which is Raz does not do. Like, this is, I think, was kind of like shocking to me personally is like he's being treated so badly and just like, yeah, you got to come over, man. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, not a loot, like, he's not a, a person who doesn't have friends who like yeah. deeply needs to have his, uh, his buddy come over. He's like, no, come to the party that I'm having. And he continues to invite this guy who's, being disrespectful, rude, awful to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he kind of, I mean, to tie it into one of our, uh, he reminds me a little bit of Chris from Stand By Me. Yes. Where he's like always steadfast, right? Yeah. Anyway, a couple of little other characters, tidbits that came up that I thought were interesting. Petrovich, the uh, Porphyry, the um, cop, 
the police officer who's detective detective of, yeah. who's investigating the murders and just as an aside it seems to me like his first and only suspect is Raskolnikov yeah you he know? doesn't, he doesn't have think... any other suspects and, um, yeah. so one of his lines is psychologically he won't get away from me and so like he's super aware of how the human brain works which is why he's such a good cop right again because he has no evidence all he has is his mind like his int- intuition and he like just like there is everything about raskolnikov is off right now and he's, he's like a, a dog of, with a bone he's a bit of a weird guy and then there's a section uh, it's part four of chapter four if you want to read some of the best writing and literature in the history of of human art and culture the conversation between petrovich and raskolnikov it's like again the trope is cat and mouse the reality of the feeling is like this it's you know what it is it's reading the best version of a trope yeah right it's reading the thing that maybe produced the trope maybe i don't know it's like watching if you love hockey it's like watching the greatest hockey game you've ever seen it's like the pinnacle of an of something that if you love that thing so if you love literature if you love dialogue dialogue if you love thoughtfulness the conversation that these two have for an it's like it's like 40 pages almost. it's like watching two great tennis players play tennis yeah. against each other yeah. like back this, and forth uh, back like, and what forth, a perfect forth. what a perfect yeah. analogy like this section of the book is the federer and nadal five sets tiebreaker three hour match yes kind of exactly thing, you know it's just an aesthetic joy and then I just like there's a hilarious. I think we alluded to it earlier. There's a, to me it was a really funny part of the book how right when Petrovich is ready to convict Raskolnikov, this guy named Nikolai comes out <laughs> of nowhere and confesses it. to the crime in some weird uh, like and, turn of fate. It, yeah, and how um you know it reminded me of I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's I think it's Ethan Hawke and Emma Stone, and it's a movie where Emma Stone accuses her father of satanic ritualistic infant killing so it's like from the like when the satanic scare of the 80s was kind of happening right and the dad admits to it he said yeah i killed babies kind of thing and then throughout the movie we realize actually none of this happened and it's false memories so it's the idea of the false memory yeah, and how memory is so unreliable and how interesting that is where it, like, it really seems like Nikolai thinks he killed them. <laughs> like, no, he's pretty convinced <laughs> yeah. of it. And he seems like a fairly simple minded guy. And, and again, how, but like, yeah. Okay. Would you ever think you killed someone when you never did? Like it's, it's just, I don't think, yeah, he's simple, but to forget that yeah, that's is a, so incredibly crazy that well, I would he, still say this seems like there's something else going on. Impressionable. Yes. Like, he's convinced of things against his own faculties. Uh, yeah, okay. There are, that definitely seems yeah, possible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> given what my experience with Homo sapiens has been. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the most interesting character in the book that we don't, like don't need to talk about a lot of his Svidrigalov. I think he is fascinating because every scene he's in is riveting. But yeah, there's but a, I agree. I don't think it really adds to what well, we're talking about. He he brings tension to the plot. Yes. 
right? He, he is he's a plot driver for yes. sure. Yeah. He he brings a lot of tension, but he and, doesn't and interconnectedness. He brings yeah. a lot of interconnectedness yeah, to the plot yeah. too. Yeah, like uh, a lot of different uh, disparate characters yes. are connected through him to Raskolnikov. One thing I did write down that I thought was really cool is that uh, there's a line because I think he's like expecting money from Raskolnikov based on what is owed to him through Dunya or something like that. Like I can't remember. No, he was gonna give money. So really, like yes. He was... So he had this ten thousand rubles that he was just gonna give, but and, and it was under the impression. See, Raskolnikov had him down the whole time, right? He just wanted Dunya, right? Mm-hmm. He just wanted her. And he was trying to like play the generous. Like yeah. he gave a he gave a whole bunch of money to Sonya and the sisters after Katrina Ivanova died. And he's trying he's playing this whole thing, but what you eventually realize is that all of this was because he was obsessed with Dunya. Right. Obsessed with her. And actually I, I think his his suicide was fully like when she's like I when she shot him, but also when she's there's a lot of the thing is, everything we've talked about so far in this book, you can read this and and you'll still enjoy every... If you haven't read it yet, there's so much. Here. Yeah, like, that's true. We could talk about this for yeah. days. Okay, well, anyway, the actual line, because I put it in quotes, oh, yeah. so it is verbatim, is where he says... He's talking to Raskolnikov. They're having like dinner at a restaurant or something, and he says, there's unsettled business between us. So... We've tossed our business aside and taken off into literature. Uh, and then I wrote bonding at the philosophic level. So uh, it's that kind of idea where if you get down to brass tacks, you know that there's an uncomfortability you're going to have with the person you're talking to because probably there's a misalignment of values or a grading of incentives or something like that. Like you kind of like ah, shit, like, I have to reprimand or I have to, like, I have to browbeat this person because they owe me money. I don't want to. I think people relate to that, right? So let's avoid that uncomfortability and let's take off into popular culture. Yeah. Right? Because there there we can actually bond. And and I just think that that's such a really cool insight from Sidrigalov slash Dostoevsky is that it's kind of like a coping mechanism with having to do hard things with other people in a social sense where, uh, you know what, let's avoid the hard thing by making small talk. But like, obviously with them, it's not small talk. It's really deep, deep thoughtful deep. talk about literature, but not about this unfinished business. Yes. That they have. Yeah. And what I loved is, and this is very much in keeping with Swisher Gallo's character, which is what I like about him is that he takes that. I like when people make explicit, the implicit things that everybody knows, right? right? right. Like actually says it so that even if, and even if it's like a hard thing to say, it's just better that it's out there. That's like kind of my thought. It's just better if it's out there in no uncertain terms. Even, even if it's hard (laughs) to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's hard, we have to let you go from your job because we don't have enough money. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's just like, and, and we don't have enough money because we haven't gotten enough because of, we're not bringing enough value to the world. <laughs> you know, like yeah, whatever, yeah, right? Like that's yeah. just an example. A hard truth that everyone knows that's the true reason, but, but whatever. But yeah, right? but, they're, but they're stating it. Stating the truth. And, but, and then also the flips, the other side of it too is how, okay, so we can't, I don't want to talk about this shitty business thing we have between us. 
So let's wax philosophical a little bit because that's interesting and you're you're a smart person and I'm a smart person. So all of our pragmatic, practical things aside, you know, <laughs> let's have a little let's, fun let's have, for 20 yeah. minutes. <laughs> Before we have to go into this thing, yeah. Yeah, and then um, last little character quote. There's a conversation about two-thirds of the way through the book th- with Raskolnikov and this guy whose name is something like Mr. Lebikadadatsov or something like that. Let's I call him Leb. <laughs> I can't call Yeah, I don't know his name, so Mr. Leb. And so this is Leb talking to Raskolnikov, and he says, if you show a person logical proof that essentially he's got nothing to cry about, he'll stop crying. That seems clear. Don't you think he'll stop crying? And then Raskolnikov very dryly and with just like the appropriate amount of irony says, that would make life too easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I liked that. Yeah. That was really good. Uh, and so then to kind of hit into the home stretch here, I wrote uh, like a category of what I called psychology tidbits from Dostoevsky himself. This isn't any other character. One of the things I wrote down is, I think the greatest, well, one of the best pieces of evidence against, like the the implausibility of a conspiracy working is that there's just too many people involved. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> sorry, all 9-11 truthers out there, but to me, physical evidence aside, the social evidence is too overwhelming. Like the thousands of people who would have to be involved who wouldn't say a thing or like it never got out. Or it's like, it's like (laughs) one of the great things of this book is that one person can't get away with something almost all the time. How are hundreds of people supposed to get away with conspiracies? And that doesn't mean conspiracies don't happen. It's just that they're so hard to pull off. And like think about the number of times that people get convicted of corruption or whatever it is. Like, or everyone knows that they're doing it, but they're too powerful to stop. Like, sure, conspiracies are like they're secret and people don't know. Like, everyone knew what Saddam Hussein was doing. He wasn't hiding it. Maybe from the global community, but like, he was gassing the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Like that that happened, and so that's a different kind of evil. But like conspiracy, like it's truly Area Fifty One. Right. Yeah. Which which apparently is going to be stormed soon. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'm spe- I I mean specifically the conspiracies that are clearly outcomes of motivated reasoning or like some sort of weird psychological plant, tick like, or like a that's Illuminati. Under, yeah. Or... Like as soon as you've disproved one point of the argument, instead of acknowledging that, they just move on to the next one, kind of thing. Uh, my, <laughs> I guess, view on this is that. I don't think conspiracies work. They just don't seem likely. <laughs> no. Because of how, because like, in the entirety, there's no whistleblowers in, at, at any level. Maybe I'm just naive. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I, there's I some, like, um, humans are gossips at, at heart. The ima- yeah, exactly. Like they That's love the to talk about to what they're it. doing yeah. or, or the, the, the secret going that they on. have. Right? How many people would have to be involved in a fake moon landing to sincerely bamboozle the whole the, world the the billions of people <laughs> who were tuned in watching it and you know it's just yeah enough said. i just yeah <laughs> uh this is a great line a single immense new sensation of abundant powerful life surging up in him the sensation that could be compared only to the sensation of a man condemned to death who is suddenly and unexpectedly pardoned 
I, I love that this comes up in like every single Dostoevsky book because he went through it. Yeah, so Crime and Punishment, 1866. I just looked this up today. In December of 1849, when he was a youngish man, I think he was in his 30s, uh, maybe late 20s, Dostoevsky himself was actually condemned to death by the uh, law or the the (laughs) police of St. Petersburg. And so he was actually in front of a firing squad, allegedly tied up with a bag over his head, minutes away from being shot when the crowd received a pardon from the czar. So he was not murdered, right? And then, you know, went on to become a prolific novelist. And I, I again, fail. <laughs> like, my vocabulary fails to describe what's going on with Raskolnikov all the time. My cognition and empathy fails to figure out what must have happened to what would happen to a person who's in front of a firing squad about to be murdered in their relative youth still and then pardoned like what kind of motivation and lease on life that would give you right and and i feel like he like he's kind of embarrassed to try to describe it but he's always trying to describe it he's like if you were in that moment and then you were given a choice to live in any way because you don't want to be self-indulgent. No. Right? You don't want to just be like, this happened to me. This happened to yeah, me. Yeah. This happened to me. But this but happened to me. But he's kind of like, this happened to me. This happened to <laughs> exactly, me. This happened to me. Right? Because, like, he's about to get, like, killed. Like, he's moments away from the end. And he has no choices or options here. Yeah. And then suddenly, he's given a new lease on life. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, and then it's just like... Artists need to be traumatized to become great artists. Like maybe he never would have written these kind of books oh, yeah. without that experience, you know. Maybe but, he would have re- written uh, pamphlets and become mm-hmm. the next Marx. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Good joke, David. <laughs> so anyway, I guess if you want to be a great artist, better get in front of that fire. Have squad. have very close near death experiences. <laughs> I suggest uh, what's that uh, that flying thing that you can do this with the squirrel suits. <laughs> <laughs> the views expressed on this podcast are not indicative of the views of the podcast. Do not try this at do home. Do not try that at home. <laughs> Please don't traumatize. No Although it is interesting, again tying that back into the Marxist critique we made earlier, how I actually think one of the most depressing side effects of Marxism is that it makes people way less interesting. Yeah. Right? It's True. it's the trauma of the tragedy of life that actually breeds great art. Well the other thing is though that Marxism and socialism don't actually take the tragedy of life away. They just try to like <laughs> they just they just punish you if you write about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the very like kinda part of the it, it's in the epilogue of the book where they talk about how after his tra- like because he gets found out he has well, a no, trial. he confesses. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. he gets found out and he confesses. Yeah. He confesses. There's a trial. He's sent to Siberia. And so I just kind of thought about how interesting it is that we have human as the object of study, which is a lot of this, like a lot of the epilogue especially, but also in the book is talking about how Raskolnikov is making a, a, an amazing case study for the psychologists of Russia, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to the subject of participation, Right, human as object of study versus subject of participation, and I think that this actually makes life 
really tricky because it depends on your relationship. If I was alive, <laughs> if this was a real story and I was alive and I lived in St. Petersburg and I read the newspaper about this guy who um, murdered, these, murdered two these two people, my entire stance would be the objective stance where I'd be like, oh, wow. Like, And then read his reasons and the desire and the paper he published, etc., you know, I'd give it a chunk of my attention, not a ton of it, and then be like, well, okay, that's interesting. Like, that's a really interesting case study, as opposed to his mom or his sister, especially, and, and Raz, those three people who have to, and Sonia, who have to, like, live through the pain of seeing someone they care about, and not to mention the two woman, women murdered, right? Like, for all of those people, it's subjective. And yet, I don't think you can live without either of those ways of being, right? Yeah, you have Because that objective don't... way lets you improve your subjective versions of things, and yet it does feel like we're, we live for those subjective versions of things, right? I bring that up much more as a question than a fully formed thought, but how it seems to me part of it is like maturity is able to analyze and to love, you know, like being able to somehow manage to do both at the appropriate yeah, objective times. and subjective. Yeah, yeah. Like, like knowing when is important, knowing when to be like caught up in humor with friends and knowing when to enjoy talking about humor as a topic. Right, right. right. And um, I, I don't know, part of it seems to me is like you got to kind of know what you want out of other people and then and especially another person, right? And um, I think part of the art of living well is figuring out when to be objective and when to be subjective. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think we see that in this book is there, if you're disordered on that, if suddenly everything becomes objective and you're, and, you're, and you're bashing your subjective reality down into this, no, that doesn't matter, which is what we kind of see with this, what – he does with his subconscious is he's pushing it down and he's saying no these positive things about me like he gets mad at himself for giving money to this family to have a funeral for their uh, husband slash father and he's like why did I give that money that was stupid but that's a big part of who he is and the murderer part seems to be his ideology the the disease of his misordered thinking so He's, he, he thinks he's being objective in that moment. But really, I think this is a big belief that I have. Objectivity is actually impossible. And, and the more you rely on your own objectivity, the more you're like, well, I'm a rational person. I'm a person who can truly perceive reality as it actually is. The more of an idiot you are. <laughs> because you should always be distrustful of your own objectivity sure i mean uh, that's what science is right well, what is science it is the constant pursuit of disproving observation yeah and you're successful as a scientist on an actual level if not on a societal level when you can disprove even your own theories yeah um <laughs> we've been recording for a long time so <laughs> i'm not gonna go too far down this <laughs> yeah i think yes the way I would say it is that, to me, objectivity, well-construed, is not truth-finding, it's error-correction. Yes, 
less wrong. Yes. Less wrong, not right. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you buy that definition of objectivity, I think it's immensely valuable to improving the lot of folks. Oh, oh, I, I <laughs> right? think it's immensely valuable. I'm just saying <laughs> Because the there's problem... also an immense humility to that. But the pro yeah, but the problem with like talking about objectivity, let's say, and saying, well, I'm being really objective right now, is that you suddenly put yourself in a place where no human can be because all human perception is yeah. subjective. Well, to me, it's like anything. You don't need to say you're being something. You just need to demonstrate it. Right. <laughs> Which I guess my if, argument is you cannot demonstrate objectivity. Well, you can demonstrate a desire to get less wrong closer to being less wrong yes right yes and, and that i agree with and and so like interestingly enough if i were again a citizen of st petersburg at this time and if this was a real story i would read the newspaper about raskolnikov someone i never met and be like oh man like well it's not a totally dissimilar reaction that i have to it as a audience of the novel in the present day where i'm like whoa geez like there's so much going on with this guy as opposed to like imagine if it was actually someone in my family he murdered. I'd have a different reaction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's really complicated, like everything in this book. But I think that there is something really important in dancing with one foot in the subjective and one foot in the objective. And objective as less wrong. Yes. Yeah. And subjective as in... As in... Uh, the, the default human experience of life that you kind of yearn for because it is actually the epicenter of joy yeah of a lot of things yeah right closing thought on this book because i know it's not easy <laughs> oh when you approach i would say reading this book i'm gonna have to read it again because it's just it's too much to fully encapsulate but it is so rich there's a richness to this book that I think you and I discussed offline at one point. You feel like you get to know a person. And is it a good person? Well, no, probably not. But at least, but you get to know someone. Yeah. And, uh, and Certainly you, not good in any normative sense. No, no, exactly. But that once we get... Well, okay, sorry, let me rephrase. Good in a normative sense if you only observe behavior. Yes. But because we've given access to his thoughts, we know that there's an an evil or a or a misordered thinking there. But probably of all books that I've read in my life, it's it's one of the most intimate interactions with another human being you can have. So well worth it. Yeah, yeah. My um my last thought on this is that. The way that Dostoevsky is able to give thousands and thousands of different minor changes in direction of my opinion of Raskolnikov makes me think that I <laughs> am still very much a student of the human, which actually makes me very excited. <laughs> Like reading this book, and I would say, like Dostoevsky to me is one of the greatest observers of human nature ever. And I would, Crime and Punishment, this book, and I would say his, uh, you know, magnum opus, Brothers Karamazov, 
those two books I would put in the top 10 novels of all time. Uh, I actually like Brothers Karamazov more. I think it's there's even more to it, but this one is... Brothers like, Karamazov is even harder to digest. Exactly. It's even bigger. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's longer and harder to understand. <laughs> the battle that Raskolnikov has between his conscious, conscious thoughts, which is what I think we would call his self, and his subconscious thoughts, which actually have way more magnitude in his behavior than he would ever be able to give himself credit for because he only his conscious thought his conscious self only focuses on his plans and his ideology and yet so much of his subconscious the the things that pull at his subconscious are so in contrast to his conscious thoughts that it fucks with my notion of what is him right do you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. it t- like if you want to put it really it in breaks a- it down to the question of what is a person yeah right? like you're, like the, you're the, asking some you this book causes you to ask fundamental questions about what is a self yes and then i'm like okay well what does free will mean in all this if he, like because his free will seems to be very much the evil <laughs> murdering type and yet his the things that he can't control that eat away at him are like way more laudable yeah (laughs) you know uh so you could talk about the poison of ideology but i i'm left walking away from this book feeling like man i still have so much to learn about the brain (laughs) you know and that's exciting to me because it's it just this book makes you think and think and think and think and think and think and it's really an enjoyable yeah. read yeah like, like that was one of the things that i you're not, you're not i don't remember liking bored. the prose as much as i did and it's like again part mystery part drama part comedy it's got everything right this is it's a dostoevsky dostoevsky hits all the archetypes and so This book, here's how I would put it. This book reminds me why I love books. This book encapsulates why you love books. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I would recommend you read it. So anyway, thank you for listening to (laughs) this uh, behemoth. (laughs) My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. It's been another episode of Really True Fiction. And uh, if you've made it to this point, you're definitely a true fan, and we thank you. So have, and, a, yeah, have a good one. And, and you know, the human spirit, guys. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. And uh, next time you think about what it would be like to murder someone you're angry at, just remember that it's going to eat you up, so don't do it. Yeah, it'll eat you up forever. <laughs> There's the moral lesson <laughs> yeah. in the book. And they'll probably find you. <laughs> See you later. Okay, bye.